what I'd like to talk about this evening with you is about symbols. In the Buddhist tradition, in the story of the Buddha, we're told that the, that the Prince Siddhartha, through a certain vision and understanding, left home and left his wife and young child in order to enter a life of homelessness. And for, the, for Prince Siddhartha, that was the beginning of his spiritual path, a path that was dedicated to seeking awakening. And it was also a path that took a particular form. And the form of his spiritual path was about being alone and about being unencumbered by commitments, by relationships, or by engagement with the world. In the Christian tradition, the spiritual life is often very much symbolized in a rather monastic way. Um, it's symbolized by celibacy, and often it's a spiritual life is symbolized as being a life that is wholeheartedly surrendered to God. And like the Buddhist tradition, the symbols in part of the Christian tradition are symbols of disengagement, symbols of simplicity and in, of solitude. Now, in the Hindu tradition, in the Hindu religion, life is often described as a series of stages where in the first stage of your life, you find your place in the world. You know, you, you study and you find a profession and a job and you perhaps marry and raise children. And then after you've completed those commitments, at that point, you're actually then free to live a spiritual life. And that spiritual life, again, is often described as a life of disengagement, of renunciation and simplicity. Now, the Jewish tradition tends to be a little bit better, I think, with many of its symbols. There are many a story of playful rabbis who are actually in the world. I think for us, many of the symbols of the spiritual life are actually very important to us. They inspire us. I don't know if you ever re even remember what inspired you to begin a spiritual path or to explore meditation. But at some point in our lives, all of us took the first steps on our own path. And the reasons may be very different for all of us. Part of the reasons may have been about dissatisfaction in our life or looking for a way out of pain. But I think it's also true that we would never have been able to take those steps if we hadn't also at some point in our lives been exposed to some symbols of otherness, some symbols of possibility. I know for myself, in my own path, the symbols of the spiritual life were very important to me. When I first began to practice, I used to read a great deal the stories of the Buddha, the stories of great mystics, because they gave me a sense that in some ways, these were real people. They were people like me, 
who had perhaps experienced at some point in their life similar feelings or similar longings. And there was a sense that perhaps these people had discovered something deeper than just the world of appearances or the world of doing. That they had started to look for a greater sense of meaning and happiness. And I think for us, too, this is what brings many of us to meditation. We don't come here to stay the same. We don't come here in order to maintain the self-image we have. We don't come here in order to be more deeply intimate with aching knees and sore backs. We have a sense that within this path and within ourselves, there is a deeper sense of possibility. For myself, my beginning in practice was actually something that was very, it seemed very accidental at the time. I kind of accidentally ended up in India when I was 17. I never meant to go to India. I was on my way to Morocco. And somehow I ended up in India by mistake. And of course, I hated India when I got there. I absolutely could not believe that I ever ended up in this place. And I would have left immediately, except that then I would have to go back through Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Turkey, and Iran, which were much even worse than India. So looking for some way to kind of recover from all of this trauma, uh, somebody advised that it was a good idea to go to the mountains. So I thought, well, anything sounds like a good idea at this point. So I went to a place called Dharamsala, which is the home of the Dalai Lama. And was frankly totally stunned because in entering that place, which is a very large settlement of Tibetan refugees, many of whom were very impoverished, many of whom who had lost their families or their families had been tortured by, their, by the Chinese, they were in exile, they were sick, um, and they were incredibly poor, and they were so radiant. They were so kind, they were smiling, they were peaceful, they were calm. And for me, this was such an awakening and a real sense of understanding that these people actually knew something that I didn't know. They actually knew something that I didn't know. And for me, they were at that point a kind of living symbol of a sense of possibility a sense of, a symbol of greatness of heart. I think the stories of seekers of the past inspire a sense of possibility within us. And what they offer us, I think, is a deeper sense of faith in our own path and deepen our own commitment to understanding. The symbols that inspire us are not only symbols from the past, they are also symbols from the present. It's a story of the Dalai Lama last year was giving a teaching to a group of Westerners, and it was very serious and very solemn, and you know, he was leading this teaching. And suddenly someone came rushing into the hall with a telegram for the Dalai Lama. And everybody stopped, the ceremony stopped, and the Dalai Lama opened this telegram in the midst of all of these people, and he burst into tears. 
And this was quite shocking for a lot of people because here was this very holy, this very saintly man, and he was crying and weeping in the midst of this teaching. And someone said to him, well, you know, your holiness, what's happened? And he read out the telegram which said that he just, which told him and informed him that a group of monks and nuns who he'd known had just been executed in Tibet. And then he paused for a moment and he said, let us pray for the Chinese. That kind of capacity to forgive, a kind of capacity for compassion, I think is a symbol for us of really what is possible for us in our lives in the midst of the greatest adversity that you don't actually have to have a perfect life, a perfect environment in order to be forgiving and compassionate, that this really has something to do with our own hearts. And I think we are very fortunate in many ways to be surrounded by so many symbols. IMS is a symbol for many people. It's a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of understanding. When we sit, it's also a symbol for us. Even though there may be nothing going on in our sitting and we feel like we're wasting our time, somehow to be in this posture, to be calm and silent, it symbolizes something for us. It represents a path for us that deepens our own commitment. When we go through our lives, we see the symbols of churches and temples and monasteries. And all of these symbols actually make an impact upon us. I know at the, the center, the meditation center where I teach in England, it too has been a real place of calmness and stillness for many years. And it impacts so many people who come there. Even when the mailman comes or the milkman comes, you know, they come carefully. You know, they walk a little bit more slowly, they turn off their radio, they shut their door quietly. They are aware that this place is actually representing or offering some sort of impact in their lives. The significance of symbols of past and present is that they remind us in very direct and very immediate ways of what is important, of what is important in our lives what is important in our world. Many of these symbols remind us of the enduring values of peace, of compassion, of freedom. And in those times in ourselves when we feel most chaotic and most confused, somehow these symbols remind us just to pause for a moment and to remember that something else is possible. And also, many of these symbols remind us that freedom and compassion and understanding, that none of these qualities are only the territory of saintly or special people, but they're the possibilities of all human beings. I feel that it's deeply important for us as parents, as people, to learn to connect with and to cultivate the symbols in our lives that represent possibility, that remind us of what is truly important. Because we do, all of us, live in a world where we have no choice often about being bombarded 
with a variety and multitude of other symbols. We turn on our televisions and we don't see much on our televisions that reminds us about renunciation. You know, you don't see ads for simplicity. You don't see very many programs that remind you of greatness of heart or freedom. When you pick up a magazine or an, look at an advertising, we encounter a world of symbols. And what are the values? What are the values, the messages that are being portrayed through many of those symbols? And many of those symbols are deeply seductive and hypnotizing. Sometimes I'm appalled when I go to the supermarket with my son and he tells me with such conviction, you know, that Daz really does wash brighter, you know. He's really so sure of it. And I say, well, how do you know? How do you know that that's true? Well, you know, I saw it on TV. You know, I saw the experiment. It was true. Our symbols make an enormous impression, a profound impression on our consciousness. And think about the values, the messages they give us. So many of the symbols we do receive from our world speak about the importance of appearance. They impress upon us the values of success, of having, of possessing, and winning. Many of the images and the symbols to our media portray the virtues of violence, the virtues of domination, the virtues of invincibility. You don't see many losers praised in much of what we receive from our media. Even freedom in the symbol or through our media is sometimes portrayed simply as having the power to do what we want. Freedom is sometimes just portrayed as having the power to fulfill our desires and to master any obstacles that get in our way, that get in the way of fulfilling gratification. And sometimes these messages are portrayed as the most ultimate of human possibilities. In these symbols that our world often delivers to us and delivers to our children, we don't hear a great deal of mention of peace, of compassion, of open-heartedness, or of a freedom that is not concerned with domination. And because of this, because this is our world, this is why I feel it is so important for us to cultivate and bring into our own lives, our own culture, other symbols that represent a deeper sense of possibility. Important to consider, how would we bring into our lives symbols of loving kindness? Symbols that help us to stop a little bit and pause and listen. How would we bring into our lives symbols that remind us about compassion and about greatness of heart? It's important for us and it's important for our children. Now many of us, I think probably it's true that for many of us when we grew up, we actually had more of these symbols in our lives. 
I mean, probably many of us, when we were children, used to be taken to church or to synagogue or to temple. And sometimes those times may have felt pretty irrelevant or pretty boring or pretty meaningless for us. And yet at the same time, we receive some form of subliminal message that there is something other than just doing, than just winning, than just performance. Many of us, well, I guess probably all of us, grew up in an era, the hippie era. I mean, what were our symbols at that time? You know, we, we talked about peace all the time. We talked about love. We talked about flower power. We talked about ending war. This is not so common for our children. This is actually not so common for our children. I mean, we might look back at those times and think, well, we were a little dozy, you know, or, you know, maybe we were even a little unrealistic at times. And yet, didn't we also have with us a sense of vision which was not just about my personal gains, my personal successes, what I have? Unfortunately for many of our children, they're growing up in a world where their world may be somewhat bereft of symbols that truly are important, that remind them of something greater than just winning or proving themselves. I feel as parents it's really important for us to question of what is really informing our world. What is really informing the world of our children? Now, the symbols of the spiritual life, I've spoken a little about it. The stories of the Buddha leaving home, retreats, formal meditation, sitting, these are all symbols that may be really important to us and touch us deeply and lead us to question what we value and what's important for us. Many of these symbols are the seeds of our own faith and trust. They're important for us. But many of these symbols are also confusing for us because so many of these symbols seem to deliver to us a message that we need to leave behind us a world of engagement and a world of relationship if we're going to do this path right. I think the message in many of these stories and many of these symbols implies that it's somehow necessary to renounce the world, to renounce community, to renounce commitment in order to deepen in a spiritual path. I mean, the Buddha never took his wife and child with him. This is, you know, this is not how the story goes. They were left behind. There are very few stories that speak to us of living a sacred and a vital spiritual life in the midst of relationship, in the midst of work and life engagement. There are actually very few models that we can look to that show us how to live with integrity and wisdom and compassion in the midst of chaos. How many models do we have? How many spiritual models? I mean, does the Buddha tell us anything about how to deal with a child having tantrums? You know, do we have any models in the spiritual life that give us some important information about how to deal with a, a teenager with raging hormones? 
you know, about how to, to work with a child who actually refuses to listen. I think it is really important for us to honor and to appreciate that in very real ways, we are actually possibly the first generation of parents who are attempting and exploring what it means to live a vital, alive, spiritual life, exploring a path of deepening and understanding in the midst of life relationships and commitments. There are very few models or precedents for this. In many ways, you are all trailblazers in a new tradition. The first, perhaps, generation of people who are really intending to weave together a spiritual life and a householder's life. There are a few models or, or symbols to guide us from the past, and very few places or people to turn to for understanding, except to each other. Which is why it is so important that we can gather together in a place like this to really honor what we are trying to do in our lives, to really honor and appreciate that, and really acknowledge what respect it really does deserve. Now, all of spiritual teaching, in my understanding, repeatedly tells us of the significance of being present and being awake. This is what spiritual teaching is about. Be present, be awake, be aware, be free. This is what we are taught, to learn from the present moment to live one moment at a time, and to learn from what each moment brings to us. Seems to me that all of spiritual teaching encourages us to open our eyes and our hearts to the moment that we're in, and to learn how to regard and to respect this moment as a powerful presence, as the teacher that is offered to us. That means that the moments of anger that we experience, these are the very moments where we are asked to learn about calm and forgiveness. These are our opportunities. The moments of expectation and demand we experience, whether we extend them to our children or to ourselves, these are the moments when we're asked to learn the wisdom of letting things be, of allowing, of acceptance and spaciousness. The moments of darkness and confusion that we might all find ourselves in, these are the moments that we're asked to bring the light of attention. Where else do we learn about compassion, about kindness, except in the moments when we find ourselves most judgmental and most harsh? I have never heard of any Dharma teaching, any spiritual teaching, that tells us that all that we're looking for, peace, compassion, understanding, that all of these are going to be found in some other time and place than this moment. I've never encountered a spiritual teaching, mostly, that tells us that peace and open-heartedness and understanding lie in the next moment 
that there's a better moment to be awake and to learn these lessons in the moment that we're in. I've never encountered a spiritual teaching that says, oh yes, you're going to learn about calmness and you're going to learn about peace and forgiveness after you've got rid of the circumstances you dislike in your life. And you're going to learn about peace and calmness after you've managed to divorce yourself from the people who annoy you or you have aversion for. And that you're going to learn about clarity after you've managed to suppress your confusion in some way. There is no teaching that tells us in this path that peace is going to be a reward for overcoming or suppressing obstacles. And there's no teaching in this path that says that wisdom and freedom are going to be the prize we get for avoiding the difficult and the challenging. Really, the whole of this path and the whole of this teaching asks us to turn towards this moment that we're in, to learn how to befriend our own moments of darkness and fear and anger and anxiety to learn how to greet as our teachers the challenges and difficulties we inevitably meet in our lives because these are our opportunities for letting go, for softening, for learning. It is so easy to see the ways in ourselves. You know, there's a whole history in spirituality of separation. You know, that, that heaven is separate from earth, that a spiritual life is separate from a householder's life, um, that the real path isn't to be found amongst the murk of our world. There's this whole legacy of separation. And I feel we need to be really careful where we in ourselves want to make separations. Because in my understanding, this path is about healing separations. It's not about making separations. And yet it's so easy to understand why we want to create these divisions. You know, when you're faced with, with an unreason totally unreasonable child, everybody's child is totally unreasonable at some point. When you're faced with, with sleepless nights or a chaotic life or, you know, ending up with a child who you don't quite recognize as being someone that you gave birth to. When we're faced with our own chaos, you know, when we see ourselves in our life and are faced with our own chaos and sometimes faced with our own anger and our own fears and our own judgments, the first thought at times that arises within us is, I want to get away from this. I want to get away from this so I can find some peace or I want this to end so I can find some space. And often in these moments, you know, we have these really rosy memories of doing a silent retreat, you know, when we were so spiritual, you know, and so calm and pure before we ended up in this accident in our lives, you know, that was never intended to be this way. We forget, of course, how often in those silent peaceful retreats, we sat with those same angers and those same judgments and those same anxieties. 
Sometimes we long to get away from it. We don't want to be disturbed. You know, there's something in us at times that doesn't want to be disturbed. Sometimes it's self-image, and sometimes we don't want our own kind of evenness or balance disturbed. But I think it is important to remember that this path and this teaching is actually intended to disturb us. It is intended to disturb us. You know, the whole of Dharma teaching and this whole path, on one level, certainly it's to cultivate calmness and balance. But on another level, this path is really encouraging us to be awake and aware and to question in our lives. And this sometimes disturbs us. The whole of this path, it's not dedicated to trying to provide some artificially created, protected sanctuary, you know, where, we de where we're defended from the world. This is my, not my understanding of meditation. It is an artificial space. That is an artificial space. This path is intended us to open us to life and to open us to receiving this moment and to trust in our capacity to receive it. It is easy to understand the inclination to want to divorce ourselves from the challenging and the difficult. And so many of our symbols tell us that that's the right way. You know, leave it all behind you. When the going gets tough, leave it behind you. Renounce the unsatisfactory. I think for our life, and for our time, the wisest renunciation we could ever make would be the renunciation of separation, would be the renunciation of all of those separations that lead us to see the spiritual life and the spiritual path as being somewhere else than right now. For us to awaken to our lives, we need to be willing to renounce separation. Any peace that is dependent on the absence of the disturbing is a very fragile peace. Once I had a student that came to me very disturbed. She had an awful life, actually, a terrible life, you know, filled with a, you know, alcoholism and, and, and vicious in-laws and she came to me and she said, you know, you really, I want you to teach me how to meditate. I must find some peace in my life. You know, so I gave her a few instructions, you know, and said, you know, we'll go home and try it, you know. So she went home and she tried and she was pretty religious about it. You know, she meditated several times a day, every day. And after a week she came back to me and she was so angry. She was so angry. And I said, you know, well, what's the problem? She said, I came to you looking for peace, and I sat down to meditate, and I was suddenly so aware of what a mess I was in, and there was nothing peaceful about it. You know, this isn't what I was looking for. And I think we need to be aware in ourselves that you can't separate peace from understanding. The peace is not the absence of the challenging or the difficult, but the peace is really found in our willingness to be with what is without prejudice or judgment. 
then we have peace. When we are willing to be with what is in our lives without resistance, then we find boundless peace and calmness. Any equanimity that relies upon removing ourselves from the unpleasant or the challenging, this is not true equanimity or balance. A Tibetan teacher I had once said that equanimity is being equally near to all things. It means to be equally near, to be willing to be equally intimate with the unpleasant as well as the pleasant. To be willing to be equally intimate with those moments when we feel threatened as the moments when we feel flattered. To have that kind of openness of heart, that kind of courage. For me, this is where we find equanimity. True freedom isn't found in making separations. It seems to me that the mark of true freedom lies in our capacity to move in the midst of any circumstance in any moment without barriers or divisions, but with composure and an open heart. A life of being a parent involves commitment, following a spiritual path, developing and deepening a spiritual path involves commitment. Both of these lives and both of these paths are the symbols that we live with. The life of being a father or a mother, the life of being a yogi, someone who is questioning or seeking. It is important for us to know how to weave together and to bond both of these symbols in our lives which are so important for us. A commitment to being a parent, for me, is really looking to find the ways that we can teach our children the lessons of peacemaking, of listening, of integrity, of compassion. That we can find the ways to teach our children about ethics and acceptance and forgiveness. It's important that we remember that we are our children's symbols. We are the primary symbol in our children's lives. We are their models and their teachers, and hopefully we can be their friends. To teach our children the lessons of transformation and the lessons of peace, we first must teach them to ourselves. We first must teach ourselves and understand ourselves what it means to be accepting and generous and compassionate, what it means to be a friend to ourselves. In this path of a spiritual life and a parent's life, we are sharing inevitably this path with our children. They are inheriting our world. They are inheriting our values and what we believe to be important. Now for some parents, this really freaks them out. This totally terrifies them. For some parents, when they really see that, they say, oh, you know, this is far too much responsibility. I'm so untogether. I'm so unfit to be a symbol for anyone else. You know, I'm, I'm totally the wrong symbol that my children ha could have. 
You know, and so many parents, in realizing what a symbol they are for their children, they feel so guilty and so judgmental of themselves. You know, they say, I'm so confused, I'm, I'm so angry, I'm so muddled, I'm, I'm so reactive and impatient, you know, and I'm not good enough to be a symbol for the children that they have. Part of this path is being incredibly careful of not making this life a spiritual path, not making it into a life of judgment. It's not a path of being an enlightened censor where we're constantly kind of rejecting and denying and berating ourselves for not being good enough. We need to be really careful of what standards we set for ourselves because standards that are unrelated to this moment are standards and models that set us up for condemnation and failure. This path is not about being perfect, and it's not about being saintly. This path for all of us is an invitation. It is simply that. It makes no demands. The whole of meditation is for us an invitation, an invitation to us to explore what is possible for us as human beings, to look at what is possible for us in each moment. It's a path of honesty and integrity. Now, all of us on this path stumble, and we make mistakes, and we falter. If we're not holding perfection as an image, we are really free to start again. We are really free to begin anew. The present moment we're in is incredibly forgiving. The lack of forgiveness lies in our own judgments and our own models. This moment that we're in offers us an opportunity again and again to begin anew in each moment. No matter where we lose it, no matter where we stumble or fall, the next moment we can begin again. This is what our meditation is like. You know, we pay attention and we lose it. After we've lost it, we have the choice. We can be very judgmental, very harsh, or we can let go of what has already gone by. We can learn from it and we can begin anew. This is the great gift of this path. It is the gift that allows us to begin again and again with our children in a spirit of innocence and freshness. For me, a spiritual life is never known by wearing a particular uniform, following a particular form, or having a particular appearance. A spiritual life, for me, is known by our commitment and our willingness to live it our willingness to live it in this life and in this moment, to turn towards the moments that we have to befriend them and grow through them. In doing this, we bring into our lives the most meaningful sim symbols for ourselves and for our children. We speak to ourselves and speak to our children of the greatest of human possibilities the possibility of being awake, aware, and conscious in our lives.
we could take two minutes just to sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.